go with Chinese or Mandarin in this session because we all speak Chinese, but no, no, that's a joke. <laughs> Unless you, you insist. <laughs> anyway, um, okay, thank you. Anyway, and you know, the Chinese century is about, um, coming from this year is about 100 years and many significant events happened in, that, in the past 100 years which uh, make what China to is, or today's China is. So, um, you know, this year is 21 nine. If you count back, there are, there are at least uh, three years which ends with nine, right? Like uh, 1919, 1949, 1989, and so on. So, uh, I think it's coincidentally or accidentally, we have uh, three speakers here which are almost uh, no, related to that three nines, right? So uh, we all know Rebecca. Do, do, we, do I have to introduce her? Because most of you are there in, in, the, in the morning session. But uh, anyway, I will say something about her. She's from New York University, a very famous historian and, uh, on China. And she has a number of books, but uh, the one is Mao Zedong, which I think you can find the ne uh, next door, and the other one is Staging the World, and also uh, one with a very interesting title, The Magic of Concepts. Yeah, I, I like the title a lot, uh, because it sounds very magical. <laughs> and um, this morning she talks about uh, China, contemporary China, and history and literature. So, uh, Later on, I will ask her to say something about that. Again, if you have any question that you didn't have a chance to ask this morning, then you can ask her afterward. Right? So it's a continuation of the morning session. And um, Caroline Khan, right? Um, is, but she has also a very famous book, um, Under, Under Red Skies, uh, Next Door. You can buy one and ask her to autograph. Well, she works for, as a journalist and a writer and is a world uh, winner, right? Uh, 21 6. She won the International uh, Award of uh, China Journalist Association. And also, she wrote for New York Times and a couple of uh, columns yeah, for years. But now it's based in Beijing? Okay. And Sichuan is a poet. So um, she belongs to the generations of something like Hai, if you know Hai Zi, right, in that generation. And now she is teach, he's teaching at the Academy of uh, Central Academy of Arts, Zhongyang East. Okay, Beijing Normal, you moved to Beijing Normal University, Okay, so uh, she, uh, he actually is not only a poet, but also a translator. He translated a lot of words by like Borges, Mihos, and modernist Western uh, poets and writers. And he just gave me a book on the Tang poetry. So it's very, uh, we call it a Renaissance man, right? To work on whatever uh, related to arts and poetry. So without further ado, I will, I will ask the first question to uh, Rebecca and then she will try to say something or respond to that. So uh, Rebecca, this morning you talk about, uh, actually you, you, you have already talked about the Chinese century this morning, right? <laughs> so uh, my first question is that in the, the first year, end of nine, the 1919 New Cultural Movement in China, um, actually is a, is a student movement, it's a protest movement, it's a demonstration, which we have 
a lot today. So uh, the, uh, the, that movement influence uh, uh, the uh, sort of uh, make what today's um, culture in China, the youth culture in China, or youth movement in China. Do there any any influence? I know you don't like the word influence or the impact on the the movement of the youth movement of China today. Would you say a bit about that? Um, thank you very much for that introduction and thank you for the question. Um, I'm not sure there's a youth movement in China today. Maybe Xichuan can talk more about having whether um, you have a, a youthful son at least and I'm not sure whether there's a youth movement. And so I can't, I mean the um, Many people have asked me whether 1919 May 4th had anything to do or has had anything to do with Hong Kong today. And I would say no. Um, I would say that uh, the movements are very, very different and that they have um, very few similarities. It seems to me that the similarity that might be, uh, I, I wrote a whole piece about this that was uh, in the Journal of Asian Studies uh, in, uh, that was published this year, but I think that um, the way in which May 4th has now been appropriated uh, in uh, Chinese history has been to um, reconsider its radicalism and undercut its radicalism in favor of uh, elevating its uh, uh, the direct line of um, of dissent from May Fourth to the communist movement, to the communist party, and to uh, the communist uh, government today, and so the historical lines that. Uh, were quite radically uh, opened in the May 4th period, which was a period I would say is not merely a student movement, but was a movement that uh, opened out to a potential for mass democracy, uh, cross-class democracy, urban cross-class democracy. There was still not any peasant uh, or, or rural uh, uh, involvement there. But I think that that radicalism now uh, in official histories and in many, many of the centenary pieces that I read coming out of Chinese um, publications and so on have repudiated the radicalism that that, that form of the May 4th uh, uh, foretold in order to more narrowly uh, represent it as an inaugural moment for the Communist Party. Not for communism, not for Marxism, but for the Communist Party. And so I think the narrowing uh, is more uh, characteristic of, uh, the, uh, problem, of, the, of, the, of the interpretation today. Um, I'm not sure that there is a youth movement in China today. The, there are um, certainly young people who are politically uh, active. Uh, there are certainly young people who are politically aware and politically uh, uh, engaged. I don't know that there is a real social or uh, social basis or possibility for a movement. So um, in that case, how do you look at uh, the spirit of May 4th, 五四精神, I think, from your point of view? 
as a historian? Well, I mean, my personal view of the Wu Si Jingsheng of the of the of the of the May Fourth spirit is that it is a spirit of mass democracy and the potential for mass democracy, a potential that, by the way, of course, has never actually been fully uh, uh, realized, not only in China but practically anywhere. Um, but I think that it's a it's a potential that uh, is inaugurated in the in the May Fourth as a way of envisioning a future in which uh, you have the involvement of a broad class uh, alliance and a broad base of uh, people who are able and willing to seize uh, certain kinds of interpretive and cultural and political possibilities and to transform society in, 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 that, in, in a certain way. Um, I don't know what the May 4th, I, I actually have not spent a lot of time in China recently, and so I will allow my um, my other uh, uh, panelists who are more uh, uh, closer to uh, probably Caroline is a youth. <laughs> I mean, at least from my point of view, she's still very youthful, and uh, and so on. So maybe they have more to say about what the uh, May Fourth spirit is. For me, the May Fourth spirit is a spirit of openness. Of, of mass democratic openness, not necessarily of enlightenment. I think enlightenment sort of uh, uh, narrows it down to an elite intellectual movement, and I think that that's uh, a mistake. But um, that's my view. So what about Si uh, Chuang, who is closer to 1919 compared to, to Carol Ryan? 19... How do you look at May 4th, 1919? Uh, closer. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah, uh, usually people say that uh, the spirit of uh, the May 4th movement is uh, one is uh, science, the, the, the spirit of science, and then the spirit of uh, democracy. Um, in, my in my opinion, that is, uh, the May 4th movement is a symbol uh, for the um, for the uh, Chinese, a century lost uh, the Chinese process of, uh, of uh, pursuing its modernization, to modernize the country. So, um, so uh, well, in order to modernize the country, then you need to have some, some new spirits to, 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 to try to break away from, at that time, from the uh, from the old China, in the sense of the people of 1919. Um, so uh, some people said that uh, the, the movement, the, the uh, May Fourth movement, uh, break down the tradition, the uh, the Chinese uh, uh, cultural tradition, political tradition, which lasted for more than two two or three thousand years. Um, I have to say that uh, I can't. Well, I because I'm in the in the I live in I grew up I was born in 1960s, and uh, I live in this uh, historical trend. I can't be away from this uh, historical trend. So uh, so. Um, so uh, I got and reality 
I got a reality which is different from the people from, uh, from the reality of the 19th century, of the 18th century. So it's a, it's a, it's an, it's a reality that, uh, yeah, we, we can find the origins from, from 1919, the year 1919. So what about, uh, you know, since you mentioned uh, the movement, uh, it's a, actually it's a cultural movement, right? Yes. So how, how does the impact on uh, you as a writer, because we have a Xinwen Xie, new literature from that period? Um, well, the, the language we're using now, it's, uh, it's uh, modern Chinese. It's different from, from, uh, from ancient Chinese or, uh, I don't know, Wen Yan Wen, how to say it in English, I don't, I don't classical, classical, classical Chinese. Classical Chinese, okay. So, um, so uh, uh, well, in China, people always, uh, some experts, some writers, they always insist on the, the, the relationship between modern Chinese, uh, the language, and classical Chinese. Um, but I have to say that uh, um, the ancient Chinese, there is a, there's a way of thinking there, lie in the ancient uh, classical Chinese. And then uh, we have another way of thinking, which is, which is a little bit different, not a little bit, but quite different. From the old way of thinking, and uh, if you have, for instance, uh, uh, the uh, the basic unit for classical Chinese, that's one character, and then now the basic unit for the language is uh, words. So when you use words, it means that uh, you always have uh, uh, at least two syllables for for a word, or more than that. It means that you have to look at the world with more than two syllables. But before, one syllable. That's the basic unit for the language. And, uh, and, uh, the, uh, uh, and uh, modern Chinese was influenced by, uh, by Western languages, especially English, actually. Uh, for instance, in, if you go to classical Chinese, you don't have clauses. Uh, and, uh, Classical Chinese is good at uh, uh, is good at um, presenting a, a landscape, a scene. So uh, and uh, you, you may jump in the uh, in the uh, classical Chinese. So it's easy for ancient poets to make uh, lines, uh, couplets. Uh, so they they may have parallel lines in Chinese. That's three jump. But, but for contemporary and modern Chinese, it's quite difficult to dui zhang in, 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 in uh, modern Chinese. It's not only a thing of the language, but our way of thinking changed. Our way of uh, looking at the world, you, so you, 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 you perspective has changed. Okay, thank you. Um, for Caroline, since you are the youngest among us, so it, it actually is it's about 100 years, you know, the May 4th. So how do you look at, how do you situate uh, the May 4th movement as a student's movement or social movement or cultural movement? Um, I was born in 1989. So like when we talk about May, May 4th or other historical events, if we, 
I, my generation, I grew up like regarding those events like something happened a long, long time ago. And probably like if you talk to your family members, talk to your, to your school teachers, they tell you there is like a whole box of uh, historical events there. Um, but of course, like a May 4th uh, movement in our his history, in our school uh, class, it was always one of the most important um, um, le lessons we learn about. Like almost if you, uh, from uh, middle school to high school examination, from high school to college, it's always one of the most important uh, thing that you got tested. Um, but what we learned about the May 4th event was always that uh, the Chinese Communist Party uh, like uh, grow from the May, May 4th. So it was like an event to basically change Chinese society. But um, for a long time, so that was it. It was always in the book. But I want to mention that a few two years ago, one also last year, there was a um, it's a relatively small scale, like a stu student protest in Beijing, in China, from the, some of the top universities. They are Marxist students, and they are trying to uh, like ask the government to form some uh, workers' union, or uh, like they have some like uh, workers' issues they want, they want the government to address. But it was quickly like a crackdown. And, uh, they, even the Marxism uh, reading club was uh, shut down because when, when you look at it, like the current Chinese Communist Party uh, don't like the Marxist student. So yeah, I, I guess like it really sometimes, it makes me people confused but not so confused at the same time. Okay, um, that's back to Rebecca. <laughs> because uh, from 1919, I think it's time for us to move to 1949, which is, uh, yeah. <laughs> So since you wrote a book on Mao and modern China, so uh, you want to say anything about 1949 as uh, you know uh, in the history of modern China, the how important that changed uh, the Chinese in the future? Well, I mean, there's 1949 is um, can either be understood as a ruptural moment, a moment of great divide and of course in Chinese in the way that Xi Chuan was talking about in terms of language and conceptual usage. I mean, one of the incantatory phrases that one comes across in China all the time is jiefang qian and jiefang hou. Okay, so before liberation and after liberation, liberation being 1949. And it's, a, it's, it's not only a word choice, it's not only a set of words, this is a, a, a chronological, a temporal reordering of the world, okay? It's a reordering of time, in, in, and it's supposed to indicate a, an experiential uh, a rupture, an experiential difference. And for many, many years, historians uh, took this ruptural moment as uh, an article of faith. There was a jiefang qian, a jiefang hou. There's a, there's a before liberation, after liberation. And recently, of course, historians have found that there was no such great rupture, that on uh, September 30th, 1949, to October 1st, 1949, to October 2nd, 1949, people didn't all of a sudden become different, okay? <laughs> that there was a lot of continuity, obviously. And so 
the, uh, the historical convention now, uh, which had been until about 10, 15 years ago, the, historial, the historical convention was to see 1949 as an absolute rupture. And now the uh, way it, that has changed absolutely to seeing 1949 as merely a, 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 a boundary that you step over that has no real meaning. And this, I think, the, the corrective uh, way of seeing this, the, 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 the sort of revisionist way of doing this, which is to see the Ho, the after revolution, as a uh, continuity, a pure continuity from the past. I think that's gone too far. I tend, my work, uh, I just wrote a new book, it's coming out with Verso, it's called China's Modern, Re uh, China's Modern Revolutions, uh, A Brief Interpretive History. And in that, I use 1949 not as a teleology, not as a, an inevitable sort of, you know, moment, but as a fulcrum around which you can organize certain historical questions. So I tend to, against the new mainstream now, I tend to still see 1949 as a moment of real rupture, even while acknowledging that people's everyday lives did not experience one day to the next an absolute break, okay? So that there's a difference between understanding a ruptural moment as a historical significance and understanding what goes on in everyday life, which may just continue on in the same routines as always, but now uh, informed in different ways. So I, 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 49 for me is still a very important moment. So if that rupture is a rupture, is a kind of a, a break, a breaking away from something, so what is the China, PRC, break away from, structurally speaking? What is well, the paradigm? I, I mean, I think 1949 presents a rupture because that's when the state seizes the power to envision what socialism might look like as an everyday practice, as a state practice. And I think we have to take seriously the problem of socialism, not because it's merely about state building, not merely because it's, not only because it's about modernization, although of course it's about a modernization, but it's about modernization. It, there's an attempt to think modernization in a non-capitalist fashion and in a way that is uh, rooted in a different form of sociality and a different form of transforming social relations. And I think that we have to take that, as historian at least, I have to take that very, very seriously. Otherwise, you just see China as China as China as China and it just keeps going from, from, from the Han Dynasty all the way till today and it's all the same China and uh, it's, it doesn't matter what the imagination is. And I think we have to take seriously what the creativity and the imagination of socialism was without, of course, romanticizing it or idealizing it or, or turning it into some nostalgic um, object of or subject of recuperation. Um, so sorry for, ask, for, me, uh, for me asking another critical question. So if um, the, the rupture is something to do with uh, socialism, 
What's the difference between socialism and Samin-Jui in Taiwan, which is also China? <laughs> they claim to call China at that time, right? ROC. Well, I, okay, well, that, that would become incredibly technical. Okay, I, 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 I think I'm going to leave that for a private conversation. Okay. I, the, uh, the, the, I, I mean, it would be very hard, we would be very hard-pressed to say that the ROC in Taiwan had anything to do with, a with, with socialism. It certainly had to do with uh, three people's principles of Sun Yat-sen, but that's uh, as re-understood re and reinterpreted by Dai Jital and uh, Chiang Kai-shek. But that's becoming, that becomes, that gets into the weeds of things that I think we won't get into. Okay, I'll leave you alone. Uh, what about Sichuan? Can you say something about the 1949? Um, that change in history before you were born? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, just now uh, Rebecca used the uh, term uh, So uh, we always uh, use another term that is Old China And I have, to, uh, I have to say that I know not Well, I know nothing personally I've never experienced so uh, when I talked about Zhongguo, I got all these uh, informations from, from the books, from the uh, old some old people and, and, and from books. But recently, it's quite interesting that not not recently in recent years, some scholars uh, in Beijing. I live in Beijing. Some scholars in Beijing in Shanghai. Uh, I found that they 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 feel a kind of nostalgia for old China, for old China. So there is a, a period of time that uh, uh, scholars, not scholars, but um, some educated people, they started to use a term which is called Mingguo Far, Mingguo Far, the Mingguo style, uh, style of the uh, Republican China, uh, that is Mingguo Far. And then, um, and then there is another historian uh, from Peking University criticized this Ming Wofar. Why? He said, all, the, all these things you call that Ming Wofar, actually they got that from Qing Dynasty. So, so at the time of uh, Ming Guo, people, uh, intellectuals, um, some very famous scholars, actually they got their uh, education from the uh, from the uh, Qing Dynasty, late Qing Dynasty, or the end of the Qing Dynasty, so this scholar said that actually I would rather call it uh, uh, Qing Far, not Ming Guo Far, Wan Qing Far. So uh, it's uh, it's a it's a very interesting thing that is uh, whenever um, not only Chinese but also uh, foreigners from other outsiders from from other places when they want to have a real China, the so-called real China, they always feel that it should be an old China. It should be an old China. And uh, then it seems that, since just now I mentioned that I was born in the 1960s, and it seems that I've been living in a, in a place uh, which is not real China. <laughs> it's, it's, I, I feel embarrassed, you know. I feel embarrassed. And uh, then, uh, uh, in order to defend my right of being uh, born in 1960s, 
I have to say, this is also China. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, it's quite complicated. It's, it's very interesting. And uh, recently I visited uh, uh, Xi'an, the, uh, the city of Xi'an, and also the city of Suzhou. And I found young people wearing a kind of Hanfu, how do you call that? Hanfu, that's a Han, Han Dynasty style dress. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and um, then I feel that, wow, it means, oh, um, it means a lot. It means, for instance, the young people, they, they at least they are not so satisfied with the, with the, with the coats and uh, style in dressing of nowadays. So they try to go back to, uh, to the Han Dynasty, the so-called Han Dynasty. I don't feel that they know much about Han Dynasty, but, but anyway, that's Han Fu. And then in Xi'an, I found young people sitting there in the big, under the big umbrella in Han Fu, in Han dress, and playing with uh, mobile phones. And that's, uh, that's the reality. <laughs> And recently I read another uh, article uh, condemning the, the promoters of this Hanfu uh, dressing. That is, actually, this style of dressing was promoted or, or is uh, being promoted by some, by some bosses. So people try to make money. Trade, try to make money out of, uh, of Hanfu. And it means that, well, if I don't know this side of the story, I feel that it's a beautiful story, that the young people, they want to go back to, to, to an old China. They try to imagine the old China. But right now, I, after I got to know this story, I feel, well, it's a, it's, a, it's a part of capitalism. It's a part of capitalism to make money. Uh, how to make money, that is, you need to go back to Han Dynasty. That's the, uh, that's quite strange. Okay, actually in, in Malaysia, we also have some people who promote uh, Han Fu. Yeah, in Malaysia, I think the, those Malaysians know more than I do. <laughs> but uh, back to, to, the, to the Chinese century question. So you mentioned like uh, Lake Qing, Wan Qing, and then the Qing, uh, Ming Guo, and then uh, Old China and New China. So it seems that there's a continuation, right? Um, yes, there's a continuation. And I actually, uh, I think whenever you think about a, a reality, um, so reality is the one layer. And, uh, and behind that, that's, uh, there's another something I call that historical logic. So. There are logics. So, so why Qing Dynasty went to the late Qing Dynasty, and one late why late Qing Dynasty uh, Qing Dynasty was replaced by the Republican China? Uh, is that Republican China? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then why the Kuomintang was uh, rep replaced by the uh, by the by the by the communist? Uh, if we just talk about history, uh, for instance, out of our um, feelings and effects, that's one thing. But the, uh, on the other side of the, uh, of the, of the uh, history is that uh, uh, there are some uh, cru, uh, cru clues there. 
And, uh, and so there's a Chinese uh, poet whose name is Bei Dao, and uh, a very famous uh, misty uh, poet. And he, uh, some years ago, he, he planned to write a, a long poem about, uh, about uh, modern China or contemporary China. And then he asked, my suggest asked for my suggestions. So I, I, I mentioned that uh, if you want to write a long poem, not only about yourself, then, then, then you have to put yourself into a, 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 a bigger uh, background. That means uh, it's something like if you go to the United States, if you love democracy, then you go to the uh, United States. Then you uh, you became uh, you became uh, you became wow in China. Lots of people feel that if you want to have democracy, you need to go to the to the United States. Yeah, that's quite popular. That's the a kind of mainstream in the media actually. And but uh, but the the thing the interesting point is that uh, uh, um, uh, well if you became if you become a, a a tramp is that homeless person. If you become a homeless person in, in the United States, then you, are, you still stand with democracy. That would be great. That would be great. If you just want to live uh, in a, a, a rich life, then you, uh, you say uh, democracy is, is great, then, uh, then I think it's, uh, it's also good. But if you're a poor people, and you still insist on, on this value. And, and that I, feel, I feel that's great. I feel that's great. So. Okay. So for someone who was born in 18, uh, 1989, like uh, Carol Ryan, so um, would you like to say something about 1949, the great 1949. year? 1949. <laughs> I think I grew up in the 90s and the early 2000s um, in China. Uh, 49 is a year has been one of the reasons inspired me to become a writer or journalist because like no matter if I were at, at school or at home like Rebecca said like people mention the word like Tifang, Tifang so often and always the, the, the things associated with uh, uh, before the liberation was all the darkness, the poverty Oh, people didn't have basic right, but after with everything becomes so great. But the thing is, what is written in the book and uh, what we later learned from pop culture or from film, films was so different, all from uh, Taiwan literature. Because Taiwan's literature just presented us, presented us a different side of the history. And it happened to be then in the early, in the like middle uh, late to 2000s when the when the internet developed so so fast in China and there were like a like a uh, like you said um, were people started to bring in the information about the other side of the history that why Kuomintang was not all bad or, or actually in this battle between Kuomintang or the uh, CCP like who did what. So it was so different from what we, we grew up learning about. So that was a time when I realized, okay, well, like, although I grew up knowing that probably there's something, there's, it's not probably, there is something difference between propaganda or the history written by uh, one side of victor, victors and, uh, and the reality. 
but it was never so strong. It was when I was in my college, I feel like I want to be a journalist because I want to meet people, probably so not so fortunate to be standing on the uh, like a weaker side. And it was happened to be the time there was this kind of movement in China when people, young people, take a camera to their villages and talking to the like Kuomintang soldiers and telling what was it like during the war and what they have been, what they had been experienced after the after '49 when the PRC was founded, and yeah, I think that was the, how I grew up uh, feel feel about uh, like 1949. So from um, May 4th uh, to June 4th, right? You were the born in the, in the year of the June 4th. So uh, as, as a person of that generation, because, because you grew up in the 1990s, so what makes you uh, go back to look at June 4th and write uh, China Under the Red Skies? Sorry. What made you move, go back to write uh, under red skies, because you were born in that era, right? Yeah. So, so what, what yeah, what, what is your motivation okay. of writing yeah. that book? Uh, there were a few things, like um, there were some family history, family stories, and uh, actually very closely related to the few years we are talking about today. Like the, uh, my uh, grandfather was uh, um, one of the first uh, Chinese Communist Party member in the village. And he um, like kind of like betrayed his family. And his dad, his father was a landlord. And he became a Chinese pa uh, Communist Party member. But in his late years, he, uh, he kind of like a, that didn't believe in the party at all. And he was always complaining that the party today is not what we, I fought for when I was young. And also, like my uh, family, like my mom shared me uh, her conversation with uh, her grandfather, who was a landlord. And later, like he during the Cultural Revolution, he confessed. And when I was write, writing the book, I said, "Oh, can I see the letter? Because I know it's with my uncle." And he said, "No, because that is the past. Like the history, that just let it pass." To to him, it's like a family scandal. But to me, like. I just want to learn about it, what happened, what did this old man say? And also the 49, there was a, like in the village, there was a guy who went to Taiwan and he thought he could came, come back like within a short time and his wife and two children were left behind, but he never came back. And during the uh, earthquake in 1976, the Tangshan earthquake, and the wife died and he later came back only in the 80s. And he came back and people were so like curious, say, oh, this is like a Lao Hua Chiao, uh, come back with probably with some gold, gold rings. And, but he came back finding the wife uh, died many, many years ago, but he never learned about it. And, and he died in this old village. And he's so different from the kind of like stereotyped uh, like Guomindang soldiers I learned or I grew up learning about. So those like events, um, family events, like uh, neighbors events, really make me think and want to write a book about a very common Chinese family. What has life been like? What's the history, um, the changes mean to uh, common Chinese people and common Chinese families? Okay, so the, the uh, things happened in 1989, uh, Tiananmen Square. Um, for me, it's very difficult to, to find a word to describe that event. 
So uh, from your point of view, like Sichuan, how would you call that Tiananmen Square event? An incident, a tragedy, or a massacre? Or whatever. I don't have a definite word. I actually I was there in in 1989, and uh, I think I well I I know some uh, uh, some more I know more about uh, Tiananmen uh, in details, but I think historians they have uh, they've uh, a kind of narrative in a, in a long uh, what's that long term perspective, but I know lots of uh, details. I was there, and uh, I feel that, uh, of course, when, if we talk about 1989, then we have to talk about the whole 1980s, 1980s. So, so and 1980s came uh, from, came after the Cultural Revolution. So the, after the Cultural Revolution, the young people at that time, they felt a need to, to know the whole world. They want to, again, actually, to, to, to modernize themselves. And me, as an example, is that I, I, in the 1980s, I, I, was a, I, I should say that I'm a good reader. I read, then I found the chance uh, that I, uh, I can uh, uh, read some books, of course, translated into Chinese. Uh, from from the uh, from the outside world, especially from the uh, from the uh, the Western world, and uh, and at that time, I, I found that I know nothing about, let's say, Romanticism, but I feel mostly needed uh, 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 was to read the modernist works. Uh, these uh, big names, I got to know these big names, uh, from literary names. Uh, Yeats, uh, Ezra Pond, T.S. Eliot, uh, Paul Valery, uh, all these, uh, Rilke, all these names at the uh, beginning of 1980s. Then I felt that I want to be uh, a modern poet instead, in, instead of a, a poet from Tang Dynasty. Although I have uh, a deep interest in, in Tang Dynasty poetry, but I want to be, uh, I want to I want to be a modern poet. And I got the spirit of doing experimental things in my writing. And, but this is my own case. And my classmates and my friends, they read a lot. And they started to think about the, uh, the fate of China. Uh, that's right after the Cultural Revolution. And I have to say that they were influenced by, in another sense, by the uh, by the uh, Cultural Revolution, and whenever so, whenever I I feel that what I'm doing is that I always I have to think about the uh, my uh, the people who stand in front of me. So if I want to speak, then I speak to someone, and so I'm shaped not by myself but by by the person in front of me. Uh, it could be a person in image in the, in the mirror. So, so, so I was shaped by the uh, by history. I, I, I should say by the history itself, by my friends, by the spirit in 1980s, and then so it went to 1989, 
And uh, my, uh, I have uh, a fellow friend, a friend who is also a poet, who became one of the leaders of the students' movement. And uh, some, several years ago, I met him again. He came back from Paris. And uh, so uh, both of us have uh, lots of, uh, well, uh, I don't know how to express it, but it's, um, I feel that it's, it's when, when we embraced, uh, when we met after so many years uh, in Beijing, when, I, when, when we embraced again, and then we, uh, he asked me some questions, all about 1980s. And then I said, wow, I've been living in Beijing, and uh, it's uh, 20 years, more than 20 years has passed, and I said, the page has turned over. And the, my friend said, no, the same page. And I said, okay, I just follow you, the same page. And, uh, and uh, so uh, I think to, to, because some people feel another kind of nostalgia for nice 1980s. Uh, as, a, as a writer, actually, I, 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 I think all days are important. So I'm writing about, uh, I, my materials uh, not only uh, came from 1980s, but also come, uh, came, uh, came from 1990s in the 21st century. But uh, my friend, Lao Mu, I can give the name of, his, uh, of this friend, Lao Mu. He only, it seems that he, he, he stopped in, in 1980s, in, in the year 1989. I was totally, I should say, I was totally changed, changed by the year 1989. Uh, I grew up, no, I was born uh, in the 60s and, and the Cultural Revolution started in, uh, uh, the, in the year 1966. So I was born before that, but I grew up during the Cultural Revolution. And uh, once I was asked by an American artist saying that, could you please tell me something about Cultural Revolution? I said. Well, uh, I grew up during the Cultural Revolution, so, so that was my ear. Uh, that was my ear. That was natural. To me, Cultural Revolution was natural at that time. At that time. I have no chance to make comparisons between the Chinese society, let's say the European society or Malaysian society. I, I've, I've, I had no chance to make such comparisons at that time. And so that was natural. And, but by and by, I feel the differences. I, I found the differences. And, uh, and uh, so, um, so, uh, so for me personally, I think 1989, the year was uh, a, a critical year for me. I was, uh, I was changed. Before that, I tried to write some beautiful lines some beautiful sentences, but after that, I feel that my, what I'm writing needs to be symmetrical to the changes, to the, uh, to the, to the chaos, to the, uh, all these uh, stories. And so I was, I, right now I'm, I'm criticized for, for, for in, in China for, for writing things not so beautiful. And uh, I think, well, I need to be honest to myself. Okay, thank you. Um, what about um, Carol Wright? Under red skies, certainly talk about or mention that 
event. So which word you use to describe the Tiananmen event? In China, it's mostly called student riot, right? 学生暴乱, yeah, so that at least that a, is what a, I learned. It's riot. Yeah, okay. like a riot. It's like a, But your book did sorry? not mention the, the event in your book? Yeah, I mentioned it, but the thing is I was born that year. Okay. So the way I mentioned it is more about how I grew up like knowing something but not learn, didn't learn about it uh, in our school. But, but it's not to say that we totally never heard of it. It's like as Sichuan said, uh, to many people, like my parents, their generation, they know it. But to them, it's like a matter of fact. They say, yeah, yeah, the year 89, the year when the student the protest. But that's it. And they, and they, to be honest, if now you ask them, they wouldn't like, give you the significance of why it's important. Of course, not like that. And at the same time, people growing up around me, um, they, don't want to, they didn't want to elaborate too much on that event. Uh, I guess I, later I talked to a, a classmate in Beijing, in my college. Uh, that was the, the 20 years anniversary when I was the, uh, in the, um, uh, the first year of college. And that anniversary, I was at an like, international studies university. So in the reading room, I could get, like, actually at that time, I could get the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and it was always made all the highlights. Like especially Asian version, and later I that night I was kind of disappointed that nobody on the campus talked about it. Oh, at least do something rebellious. And I was very young; I was 20 years old, and I was secretly hoping for that. And then at the evening, I talked to my like roommate. I say, "Well, you guys, today is anniversary," and they say, "Yeah, I, we know about it. So what? So what? My grandparents lived on the Chang'an Revenue." That was so close to the tanks. And they say, yeah, and uh, like growing up in Beijing, our parents, grandparents have been warning me a lot that don't get involved in those topics because that would not bring you anything good. And once you are really in a trouble, like political trouble, nobody could, could save you. And they also they see like, what could we do? Even we, okay, now we go out with the dormitory, we say, hey, like remember the 89, but what would we, we face? Would we do something constructive at all? They think not at all. So yeah, that's the way I learned about 89. But I have to say the day, like before college, I, I really didn't know much thing. But in college, with the help of internet that year, 2009, I read a lot of 89 and watched the documentary and watched the videos and it was for a moment I was really sad I was like it's like the feeling of like for such a long time there's a major event in history but you kind of have been hidden hit from and you are not taught and you feel like then what is right what is wrong what is true what is not true what let me just say a few more words. I always, uh, I have some uh, students. Uh, I always tell them things, stories about 1989, the year. Um, and uh, one of my students gave me a response, which is very interesting. He was born in the 1990s, and, uh, and he said, uh, don't always talk about this. I have nothing to do with this. I have nothing to do, even I have nothing to do with with the whole process of uh, 
what's that? Uh, reform. So I was born in, 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 in new days. Don't always talk about this to me. But, but I, I feel that this is a very important year, 1989. Because for me, not, not only the, the Tiananmen thing, but, but also I have two uh, friends. One friend committed suicide in that year, and the, uh, another uh, friend who, who died on Tiananmen Square. And, uh, uh, and uh, but, so, so this is really, really important. Uh, and I try, I don't want to uh, put it just in, um, I mean, the word tragedy, massacre, or, or, or uh, any other event, or, or, or a riot, or, or if you put it in a, in a long run history, it, 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 it's full of meanings. After that, after 89, after 89, so China was, uh, the market economy was uh, introduced to China. And then it went to the late 1990s. The, the whole atmosphere, the social at, at, atmosphere changed. Before that, we didn't know anything about entertainment, about consumerism. But after that, I think it's because of 1989, we have a sense of com consumerism later. And also, it, uh, there is another result that is uh, in 1980s, it seems that all intellectuals, they have the same aim to, 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 uh, to give uh, new life to China. That is to, to open, to, to put China into, uh, into the whole world. And after that, I have to say that we can see lots of splits among intellectuals, among the uh, ordinary people in the society. So after that, uh, then people, f well, people, uh, especially intellectuals, they, it seems that they, they, they will never have a time again to say things in one voice, different opinions. Lots of debates, and uh, and uh, some people wrote a book called uh, Eight Social uh, Eight Schools of Social Ideas of Contemporary China, and other people said no, not only eight, could be eleven or thirteen. So you have you have, you have different different uh, ways of thinking later, and uh, and uh, so that's. Uh, that's, uh, it, well, it's, um, I know that the, the whole society changed after that, after that, and, uh, wow. Okay, I, I like your idea of the after that. You are looking, you know, backward, right? <laughs> but anyway, uh, as a historian, Rebecca, there's no escape, right? You have to describe it as whatever in your, in your book certainly you, 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 you did that right so how did, how did you do that I think we have to remember that 1989 is a global year 1989 was when the Soviet Union fell it's the moment when the Eastern Bloc fell it was not just a Chinese year although and the Chinese uh, movement was very much part of this global movement and the global movement was very much part of the Chinese movement. And I, I like Xi Chuan, I am unwilling to name it. 
um, other than as a tragedy, a massacre. It was all of those things. It was also uh, a broad social movement. It uh, wasn't just students, there were also workers, and, and uh, it was a broad protest um, against a large number of um, accumulated social uh, problems that had uh, uh, emerged in the course of the 1980s and in the course of the uh, dismantling of the socialist uh, system and the socialist uh, 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 mode of, uh, of, of, of um, organizing production and organizing life. And it would be a fantasy to think that the um, dismantling of a whole system of life, what had been normality, what had been life, as people lived it, that that dismantling would have gone unnoticed <laughs> and unprotested. Um, and, you know, as a historian, uh, we, we try to turn the past into history. And what I mean by that is that, uh, you know, the past is a lot of raw materials, and we try to uh, turn it into a narrative. We try, try to find the historical logic that Shitran uh, was talking about. We try to, and there are several, there, there are many different kinds of historical logic that one can find. And 1989 seems to me to be another one of those moments of real rupture. Um, as Shitran says, uh, I, I too was, I was in China in 1989. Um, I was not on the square. I was actually in Nanjing and then in Shanghai. Um, and, um, but the, the um, 1989, it seems, was a moment at which, um, again, a set of possibilities could be envisioned and then that set of possibilities was violently uh, shut down. Um, and uh, the sense of, I remember that the sense of despair was um, huge. Uh, the intellectual world that had been so vibrant and so vocal and so, um, if not unified, at least pointing in the same direction or in a similar direction, uh, fell silent and then factionalized very strongly and very, uh, in a very um, ugly way, uh, where people stopped speaking to one another or started, it was a, it was a very, uh, uh, and where the state uh, decided to um, try to narrate past 1989 to, um, whereas 1949 was always a ruptural moment, they tried to narrate past 1989 as if it were continuous with uh, what was happening in the 1980s and the 90s were then not bisected by 1989, but were a continuous moment from uh, the 80s. And so 1989 did not, in state narrative, uh, is, is, doesn't feature uh, so hugely. What features in the PRC state narrative is 1992 when Deng Xiaoping went south, his southern movement, his Nanshun, and the, 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 southern, uh, the southern trip uh, then became, becomes the moment at which um, 
the abandonment of any kind of uh, a notion of a socialist present or a socialist future becomes a reality in state policy. And while there's a rhetorical uh, commitment to a certain kind of futurity to socialism that 100 years from now, or you know, maybe 89 years from now, or maybe 10 years, whatever, I mean, there are, there are, there are the future uh, moments uh, narrated into this uh, present, but where the present now is a moment of um, commerce, commerce, of getting rich, of consumer pleasure, of uh, depoliticization. One of our friends, uh, Wang Hui, who uh, depoliticizes, Fei Zhengzhihua, yes, uh, depolitic social depoliticization, um, which were you know contrasted to the Cultural Revolution moment of hyper-politicization. And so depoliticization seemed like a good idea, of course, you know, rather than politicize everything, why not just buy your ice cream and eat it and, and not think of it as a bourgeois pleasure, but just think of it as nice ice cream, you know? And so there was a, there was a certain sort of embracing of this depoliticization, this, de this way of just living your life and uh, trying your best to get ahead and so on. But 1989 um, was a, uh, uh, in historical perspective, we have to see it as a moment at which the um, global possibility of an alternative to capitalism disappears. And uh, China is part of that disappearance. Um, and it, it disappears from China in a way that's very different from the way it disappeared from the Soviet Union or from, uh, or from, or from Eastern Europe, where communist parties fell and were replaced. Uh, uh, because, of course, in China, the communist party remains and, uh, and has, has strengthened its grip on power if, if, if no, if, uh, in a different sort of way. But I think that uh, globally, from the perspective of an American historian of China, one has to look at the ways in which um, the possibilities of an alternative to capitalism, a global alternative to capitalism, uh, could no longer be envisioned from certain spaces. And, uh, and 1989 in China was very, very uh, uh, central to that. I'm sorry, I, uh, just, just a few more words, the, because just now uh, Rebecca remember, uh, mentioned this word, depoliticization. I can't pronounce it, it's too difficult. Uh, okay, uh, So uh, I remember uh, Rebecca has another point of view, that is uh, usually in China we say that uh, cultural revolution lasted for 10 years, but uh, she said that uh, actually the, um, how do you, how do you describe that? It was from 1966 to 1969. That was the, uh, is that the high time of cultural revolution? So if we, if we count the years from 1919, so from 1919 to 1969, that was a process of um, radical revolution, is that? Okay. So the, you can you can always feel that the uh, the uh, people getting uh, uh, got more and more radical, more and more radical, and it seems that uh, uh, in the year 1966, 1970, 
that was a point, a turning point. Although that was the time of Cultural Revolution, then it seems that there is another process started. That is uh, the de depoliticization. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and now, if you go to China, you always in in northern China, you always find slogans. But if you go to the southern part of China, you can. Uh, it's quite rare. And uh, and if you go to uh, Suzhou, for instance, Suzhou and Hangzhou, you don't feel many. You don't find many political uh, slogans. And of course, the government has its own way of doing these things. But for ordinary people, it's quite clear the process of this uh, DP. Okay, uh, yeah, D D DP. This process is going on. It's going on. And uh, then in China, sometimes you feel uh, frustrated. Lots of slogans. And 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 then if you go to the south, then people they don't. They don't care about these things. They they try to make money. They try to make money, and uh, and so uh, so uh, the the past hundred years, so there there was a process to, uh, for the people to be more and more radical, and then another process is starting from 1970. It's getting more and more DP. Okay. De-radicalized. De okay. Yeah. Okay, okay. Okay, actually to depoliticize is also to politicize in a sense, right? But uh, okay, because we have about a uh, hundred years to, to, to look back, to look back in anger or to look back in whatever emotion. But what about uh, starting from this hundred years and then we look to the future? How do you think China and socialization would move towards in the future? Anyone? Or no. But what about literature? Because you know, there's a difference between uh, classical literature and vernacular. And then after the Cultural Revolution, you have Xin Shi Qi Wen Xue, right? New Age literature. What about post 1989? Do you have a different watershed? I know nothing about the future of Chinese literature, but I have mm. lots of criticizes for mm. contemporary Chinese literature. Mm. Uh, and uh, in, in, it's, it's very interesting that uh, we have lots of writers. In China, we have lots of novel writers, fiction writers, uh, prose writers, and poets, lots of people. But uh, the Chinese language is uh, it's, it's very interesting. First of all, it was uh, it's a language for such a big population. But uh, if you go to, uh, but, but, but it doesn't like uh, English, French, or, or uh, uh, the uh, Arabian, uh, no, Arabian language, Arabic, and uh, Spanish. So you go to different places and people speak Spanish in Latin America, in Spain, and in, even in the United States. But Chinese, the language is mainly only I know here some people speak Chinese, but uh, but in, in, mainly in, in China. And uh, so on the one hand, the Chinese language was uh, is a language for such a big population. But on the other hand, actually the Chinese-speaking writers I have said, from the mainland China, they are quite uh, quite. Uh, 
is that the word quite uh, quite the, 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 that's a that's a lonely group of people the writers usually the Chinese writers they don't speak other languages and they don't have many communications with other with with colleagues from from the outside world and Chinese writers when they are in, uh, invited to other places they seldom meet colleagues they 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 always they have to go to sinologists and then so by by the bridge of this uh, uh, of these uh, translators and sinologists they can uh, meet some readers but but uh, the chinese writers usually they're quite alone the, the chinese the from mainland china the mainland China, Chinese-speaking Chinese writers are quite lonely in this world. Yeah, that's I want to say. Okay. I, so I, I hope that the uh, contemporary Chinese literature could be a part of the world literature. And I, I hope, I, that's, it's my hope. So, so actually in, in, in China, I have lots of criticizes for the Chinese poets, for the, uh, the Chinese uh, writers. Okay, we have been talking about the uh, Chinese century, which is, seems to, be, to have to be end like uh, 2019, right? So as a, someone from the younger generation, uh, Caroline, do you have anything to say about the next Chinese century? Um, it's a difficult question. Um, but I got something, um, yeah, Sichuan was saying, was say, saying about the too much consuming now and people are quite a uh, political young people um i'm quite worried about the uh, the censorship the state censorship i don't think it's well i i think like when we don't see people like being critical online or being critical in their life that could be because they are not critical they don't care about politics or because the critical comments are all censored and I think sometimes the way it works is the more you see other people like giving more thought-provoking ideas, the more you want to get involved. And probably from there, there are more uh, discussion debating. But if what, when you read an article and you see the comment section, it's all praising the government, the party, then there's no, it looks like there's no space for such critical comments, ideas. And then you start to doubt that are you the only one who is not so normal because why other people think this is all good, but you are being the only one who are being like, have a lot of uh, different ideas. So I really hope that in the next century, well, maybe because I'm a journalist, so I really like struggle a lot with uh, the censorship and the, um, you know, the, uh, um, but I hope there will be more freedom speech. Like a little, maybe start start from gradually a little bit more. Because now, if we look on Weibo, like China's Twitter, like a tweet, like a Twitter platform, it's all about celebrities' gossips, and basically no people talking about very important issues. But I think maybe there should be more like serious topics and to break this bubble. Okay, thank you. Uh, we have about 10 minutes left, so the floor is open. Um, I'd like to raise this question to get an idea as to why, for example, uh, I teach English. I have a qualification from Singapore 
the English Language Centre. But for the past six years, I tried to apply to teach English in China. Each time, it comes to only for those who are from five nations, native speaker, Canada, New Zealand, Africa, and I cannot break this. Until to this day, I wonder why is it that China only classify these five national native speakers of English as qualified to teach English. I hope it can be highlighted to your mass media in China that there are several countries apart from these five nations who actually produce good language teachers. Okay, yes. Good luck. <laughs> That's it, lady over there. Uh, thank you for the interesting discussions. I find it very, very interesting and I would like to share also that while 1980s, what we saw, what happened in China is something that shook the world, not just China. And other parts of the world, including Malaysia, 1980s was also a very interesting, exciting period. And we see several events that had happened during that time. Like people became more social conscious, more environmental conscious, and on issues of environment, political as well. And you see, and you see people starting also starting to express themselves and more NGOs coming out, like on environment issues, for example, the Papan issue. I don't know how many people still remember about the Papan issue, you know, the dumping of uh, certain waste in Papan, the protests that we had, and then we have the Operation Lalang, all this in the 80s. In Korea also, you saw things happening. So 80s was a very exciting period. Uh, not just in China, but yeah. in various parts of the world. And um, So you have a question for each of yeah, the then. And okay. coming, yeah, coming, just, just to share that, that point of view, not to forget, in Malaysia, we also have certain things happening. Coming back to the China issue. So can you want, use one minute to ask a question? Come back to China issue. What do you think the century, next century holds? There's a lot of criticism, but I think I do see a rainbow. I do see some light where China is concerned. I do see some openness coming up. What, what are your opinions on that? Yeah, I, I mean, there is not all darkness in China today. <laughs> I mean, that's, I don't think that, I wouldn't want to leave, thank you for that, I wouldn't want to leave the impression that all is darkness and it's all, um, uh, you know, there have been, uh, uh, there is, of course, an environmental and ecological awakening in China to the environmental damage of modernization and of, uh, of pollution air pollution, water pollution, and so on. There's uh, China uh, is one of the most polluting countries in the world, but it's also one of the uh, countries that has the mo one of the most vibrant uh, green uh, industries 
out there. And so uh, there are, there's a, China is as contradictory as any place. I mean, so there's a lot of contradictions in China. Uh, there are students who uh, attempted to, uh, to, to link up with labor unions in the South, the Marxist students that, uh, that, that Caroline was talking about. Uh, there are um, students uh, who are deeply concerned with politics and deeply concerned with, 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 with many, many uh, things. I mean, I, I've taught them. Shi Tran has taught them. I have, I get them in New York. I get them in, in, you know, and so on. And they're impressive, very, very deeply concerned human beings. Um, so there's, there's, it's just that at the level of a public discourse, things are very narrowly controlled now. And so I think that um, it's, it's very difficult to uh, break through that public discursive space and to find the spaces where um, a lot of energy is, is happening that's outside of the state. Um, they're there, it's just very difficult. Yeah, we, we call ourselves, we are you know, in the age of Anthropocene, which means we are human beings doing a lot of bad things to the earth. So that's a global question, I think. So any, any question about China and modern world? Okay, please. Can I ask first? Uh, please give the lady the, sorry. And then your next question. Hello, uh, thank you very much for uh, the very interesting discussions that you've had this past hour. I had a question on um, how present you think history is in the current iteration of the Chinese government. Because um, you, this past National Day Parade, for example, uh, there was a lot of discussion over the fact that uh, Xi Jinping adopted a, very, a look very similar to Mao Zedong. And uh, what, what, did it, what did it mean that he was um, adopting that kind of an image? So I, I guess it, I basically just want to know your thoughts on how uh, you think the current Chinese government and yeah, leadership- Yeah, someone to close the door. How, how much history is informing their current decision-making? Well, I mean, if you think, I'll be very brief here. If you think that there, if we think about two different kinds of uh, ways of thinking, uh, talking about China's contemporary moment, uh, one is the Western way to think about it is China's rise. And this is a, a phrase of panic, okay? It's absolute panic. Oh my God, the Chinese are rising. Then there's the Chinese version, which is Shangshi, right? Which is the flourishing and, and, and a growing and flourishing. Now this is a Kangxi, a Qing dynasty, Kangxi era uh, that goes back to the Han dynasty version of China. It's very peaceful. China is not rising to take over or to do anything domineering. It's just flourishing and and, and, and growing prosperous. It's prosperity and flourishing. And so the, the, the history is phenomenally important, but it's important in ways that are very manipulative, okay? <laughs> of course, but any state uses history to manipulate, okay? That's why this, the battles over history in any state, over textbooks, about, about 
Uh, I mean, in the United States, we're dealing with this, you know, consistently, and so on. Is is so that the the, the history is a battle is a, is a battleground for any state, and China is no different. I mean, Xi Jinping wearing, uh, you know, Xi Jinping was on the co cover of Time magazine wearing Qing Dynasty uh, 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 attire as an emperor. And now he's on, you know, now he's wearing Mao, Mao, Mao Zedong the suits. So, you know, it's, it's, it's self-styling. Okay, and that gentleman there has a question. So this is the, the final question, and please be brief. Good afternoon. Uh, I have three quick questions. No, no, just one question. One question. And please be brief. Right. Uh, which group of people spearheaded this Tiananmen Square, uh, this Wu Tong? Which group of people? Which group of people spearheaded this Wu uh, Tong, the May 4 so which, riot? Which speaker you want to address to? Who? Everybody, everybody. So, students from Peking University. Uh, there are several uh, students uh, leaders. Um, and, uh, and the Communist Party was uh, born in 1927. So it's after that. 21. So in the wake of, uh, of the May 4th movement. But before that, uh, there was uh, small groups, uh, Lidado's group, uh, who has some... Okay, uh, some sorry, time's up, okay? Share that. Okay, uh, let us thanks the three speakers for